Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Balance Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Zoe Aston. Zoe is the author of Your Mental Health Workout, a five-week program to a healthier, happier mind. She's a London-based therapist, a mental health consultant, a speaker, and as I said, she's an author, and she's got over a decade's experience of working with mental health. She's also the creator of a five-week program online that will help you get your mental health in shape, and she works with leading names in the wellbeing industry. So, hi, Zoe. It's really great to talk to you. I can't wait to hear more about the mental health workout. I think it's such a good idea. And I think the use of the word workout appeals to me as someone who's into fitness. And I see you've got some amazing clients from your website. I saw people like Dr. Zoe Williams, Mr. Motivator, who worked with you. And do you think that way of working, that your method and approach attracts the kind of person who is into fitness and health? And if so, why is that? Yeah, I think it, I think it, um, First of all, hi, and thank you for having me on the podcast. (laughs) Appreciate being here and having the opportunity to talk and the platform, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I think sort of coming away from what I used to do, which was work in very intense sort of rehabs and treatment centers with addictions and eating disorders and trauma and whatnot, moving into the sort of well-being industry was quite a relief for me because they're mostly people who just want to get healthier rather than not be sick, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's a totally different experience for me. But I think particularly for people like some of the names that you mentioned just then who have been sceptical of therapy or stuff around mental health or haven't quite been able to get their head around it in the past, the idea that you can work on your mental health just as you can work on your physical health is really attractive to them because they can immediately understand it better. And it actually gives them a segue into looking at things like trauma and feelings and all the stuff that we sort of avoid and can if we're not careful even use physical health you know exercise and food to get away from it gives them a segue into that and it allows a sort of much more holistic approach to their well-being and as soon as people get a little taster of that it like opens up this whole world of well-being of health that they hadn't even really sort of considered would be beneficial before. So I think, yeah, the way that I work does attract people who have maybe been sceptical about therapy in the past or felt that mental health was was stigmatised or there was a taboo around it. So I'm really pleased to be welcomed into the wellbeing community in the way that I have. Yeah, and I think um, you're absolutely right that there's a a sort of almost two ways of looking at it. A lot of people, having worked in wellbeing myself, I see a lot of people see well-being as a problem to solve rather than well-being being what it is is to live a better yeah. healthier fulfilling life and if that takes it means you do a little self-examination along the way and it's a little gets it dark at times that's no bad thing it's the same as lifting weights and hurting I guess yeah exactly exactly that's exactly the type of metaphors that I draw on when 
even when I'm in the room with people and I'm doing groups and sometimes even in one-to-ones and someone's like I don't want to do this it's really painful I'm like you're just holding a squat yeah like and you're gonna it's gonna hurt and then you're gonna stand up and you're gonna give it a shake and then tomorrow you're gonna feel stronger you know that's you know drawing those comparisons is really helpful and it also brings a bit of light into it and people start laughing because it's kind of a little bit funny but it just allows us to have a little bit of kind of light and joy in the healing process which can be very painful yeah yeah and it's and you're absolutely right everybody you say everybody has mental health and that you know it's like life is is not just skipping through days he's having a wonderful time you know we have to explore and examine so your five-week program and book I mean as I'm going to keep saying probably I I love the workout metaphor you know there's a lot of books out there how's your book different from a say a self-help book that you might grab off the shelves (laughs) Well, it is a self-help book, you yeah. know, and it, it's in it's in that section in the bookshop. So, yeah. yeah, it is a self-help book. I think the thing that makes it different is that historically books like mine that have had sort of steps to follow in have been very CBT-led or sort of therapy model-based and based in the sort of empirical evidence and, you know, all this stuff, which generally required people identifying that they had a problem before yeah. they reached for that book. So, for example, if you go for like a CBT book, like, you know, here's how to stop being anxious, 12 ways to stop being anxious or CBT yourself to help manage your anxiety better. You have to identify as anxious in order to feel like you can read that book. Whereas right from the start, I wanted your mental health workout to be a book that everyone could pick up at any time Mm -hmm. and it would help them. And whether specifically as well, I wanted to target men. I said in my very first publishing meeting, I want a guy to be able to pick up this book and not feel embarrassed that he's reading a self-help book. No pink, no flowers. Like, I just want it to be really kind of neutral and equal to all the different groups of people who are out there. Because for someone who's got a history in their family of mental health being like not talked about, to then be seen reading a book that says like, CBT for anxiety on the front is really quite challenging and probably they're not going to do it. So in my mind, the difference is that you do not have to have an identifiable, diagnosable problem or issue to read or even do your mental health workout. It's just like when you go to the gym, we go to the gym with our arms and our legs and our heads and our torso and we work with what we've got to feel better, to, you know, change maybe what we've got a little bit, hone and tweak what we've got a little bit. But ultimately we go because we're already well and we want to feel healthier. And your mental health workout is exactly that, but for the mind. Yeah, and it makes such sense. I mean, another sort of example of what you're doing in a different um, sphere is like in the um, alcohol world where um you know people like there's one year no beer and um club soda and people like that who are dealing with gray area drinkers so they're not necessarily falling down alcoholics or pouring vodka on their cereal but the kind of thing i want to do better so and and, you know the same same thing you don't want to be seen reading a book saying i'm an alcoholic or exactly on the train (laughs) and i do like the and the 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 other thing about that made me think of that is that there's that challenge approach and when you said about men I think when you feel you're about to go on and do something and have a goal and there's a program and it's a challenge and you know it's more engaging to a lot a bigger group of people. Mm-hmm. Now you've you've got your own backstory which you've shared in the book and you've recovered. As we said, life is not black and white. Um, so can you tell me more about your story and how it informs the work you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, my entry into the mental health field came out of my own experience of my own mental health and my struggles and my difficulties. 
I think I struggled with my mental health with my feelings from when I was very, very little. I don't know. I can't remember exactly all the details that I give in the book. But yeah, I do say this actually, but like I was very shy. You know, people would have looked at me and said, oh, she's, you know, she's shy. She's socially anxious. Nowadays, I kind of understand it more as a um, this thing that we're naming highly sensitive. So like the highly sensitive personality type, it's the research is still emerging, but there's more and more and more about it. And even my mum will now read a book or watch a film and she'd be like, this is what you were. Yeah. You know? And, you know, but it was it was painful to be that sensitive a person in a not very sensitive world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and still to this day, like I have really, really big feelings and I cry when I cry, like you've never experienced, like you've never <laughs> seen someone cry the way that I cry. It's, a, it's a sort of a bit of a joke in my family, but <laughs> you know, I do have very big feelings. I am very sensitive and that I was born with, yeah. but the world, the society, the so, sort of social space that I was born into a white middle-class family, there wasn't really kind of accommodation for that. You know, it wasn't, we didn't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to to deal with it I developed these coping mechanisms around food either not eating or binging and purging and then self-harming came in I was bullied quite badly and I think that was what prompted those types of behaviors but I do think all the way through my childhood I can see a sort of sensitive depression anxiety thing kind of kicking about and then by the time I was gosh I would say 18 is when I was at dance college like I really was very poorly I was very high functioning, however, which is yeah. what I think was confusing for a lot of people. Um, and lots of people with eating disorders are very high functioning because we're just running on adrenaline the whole time. And then, yeah, by the time I was 20, I was uh, in treatment for the eating disorder and the self-harm and all the other bits that go with that, the relationship stuff, the codependency, the trauma, and generally kind of learning to like myself and work with what was happening rather than rejecting myself as well as the world. Yeah. And after that, I was still, I was working as a dancer and I still struggled for, you know, a number of years. But what I think happened after that was that I had really good foundations. And despite myself, the therapy had kind of worked yeah. because I knew what I needed to do to look after myself. So when people say to me, you know, how long is it going to take to fix me? Or how long, how many sessions do I need? I'm always like, this isn't going to fix you. Like, I hate being the therapist that says that. But I'm like, I'm really sorry, but I'm not, I'm not going to fix you. Like, I'm going to give you the foundations. I'm going to get you to a point where you can choose how you want to behave, how you want to look after yourself. And then it's over to you. Yeah. You know, then you, once you have the power to make the choice, that is over to you. So that's kind of how I ended up coming into therapy. I realized that the dance world, the dance industry just wasn't very complimentary to what I needed. I was sort of too sensitive for it. Yeah. And ironically, I believe if I could redo my dance career now, I'd be a much better dancer. I'd yeah. probably be far more successful because I've got a lot more confidence and self-esteem behind me. Whereas then I was just so insecure and, yeah. and vulnerable that it just it filtered through to everything to do with my life. So yeah, I often think I'm a better dancer now. Not that I'm training now, but I'd be a better dancer now than I was way back when because yeah. I'm much more comfortable with myself and my body. Um, so yeah, I went off to study psychology um, and I did a master's. I did a sort of foundation year. I did, I did a master's and then I just felt like I'd landed where I was supposed to be because everything just felt easier. Um, I managed to get a scholarship for my master's. I landed a job on Harley Street almost immediately. I had a couple of other ones before that. And then I set up my private practice in 2015 and you know people kept coming back and for someone who's quite insecure that's always a bit of a shock that people like what you're doing and they keep coming back for more but and still to this day I think the thing that surprised someone asked me recently what what surprises you most about the work that you do yeah I say I still 
get a bit of a surprise when people come back or companies come back and they want more of what I've got to give. And, you know, I think that's the thing that helps my confidence in the work, but also still surprises me. A bit um, of imposter syndrome. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I think we all have that. I think also because I'm quite young for working in my field and and doing the things that I'm doing. And sometimes I'm a bit like, do I actually know what I'm doing here? And then I get talking. I'm like, oh yeah, don't worry. Like, I know what I'm doing. It's interesting because, you know, your sensitivity is is also probably what makes you empathetic to people. You understand other people's struggles. You you know it. And you learn on the job, didn't you? You learn learn all the tools that fix, well, not fix, that's the wrong word, that help people to support. Yeah. And support. And, and, And I think that's it. You know, being a therapist, I had no choice other than to keep working on myself. And maybe that's why, because sometimes we say therapists are, wounded healers or most of us are wounded healers and I think that's true often the most hurt or the most wounded are the people that go into the caring industries because we need that structure of care in order to continue to care for ourselves yeah so yeah remember that if anyone's in therapy Yeah, and you've got yeah, exactly. And you've got a lot to offer. And I love what you said about when it suddenly wasn't it was easy, you know, it wasn't yeah. hard anymore. So because that's a real for people who are struggling to to they, they would never feel that, you know, nothing feels easy, you're always at dead ends. And it's that thing about you're on the flow, the river's flowing with you, or you're flowing with the river, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, what I would say is I it did feel easy. I felt like, oh, this all the opportunities are here for me now, the doors are opening. Yeah. That bit felt easy. The actual journey of becoming like a seasoned therapist is pretty hard work, but yeah, I wanted to do it. Hard. And yeah. yeah, it felt like work that I was capable of doing and succeeding at. Whereas in the dance industry, I just always felt like I'm never going to be that person. That's, you know, yeah. I'm never going to get there or get to the next step of the ladder in, in my career. Whereas I could see yeah. my career as a therapist. And I bet and you worked hard at the dance as well, didn't you? I bet you were a hard worker when you were doing yeah. that. And you just put it against the where you were meant to be. Exactly, exactly. You know, I was in ballet at 8.15 or 8.30 every morning. You know, I'd be sitting outside. I was the first one there. You know, I've always been a hard worker, but it just wasn't. um, And I was good. I just wasn't great. And to be successful in the dance industry these days, you have to be great. You have to be pretty phenomenal because I didn't believe in myself. You're great at what you do now. So exactly, so, I found you my you found your great found my thing. You <laughs> did, and I've um, gone off piece a bit, but it's really interesting hearing <laughs> you talk about it. So um, yeah, actually, we're talking about the the flow and going in the right direction. I mean, we're interested at balance about what makes people happy, and um, you know what in general, but also you in particular. You know, what do you think? I know it's a big question, but would you anything spring to mind if I said what makes you happy? I believe that I have a sort of baseline of contentness that I have in my life now that I've kind of worked to get to. I made a decision quite a long time ago to not really have anything in my life that didn't bring me joy. Um, Because, you know, for a long time, there was no joy. And I look around me sometimes and I think, well, where's the joy in this person's life? And I look at people inviting things that are hard and difficult. And sometimes we don't have an option. But where I do have an option, I will only keep people, places and things in my life that bring me happiness it's a bit like an emotional Mary Kondo situation yeah, yeah. before I knew who Mary Kondo was yeah, um, exactly that I remember trying to do that with my clothes and it didn't quite work but I like the idea <laughs> yeah no I get I get sort of emotionally attached to um, my items I was looking at something the other day and I was like I've had this for years does it bring me joy I was like I don't know but I've kept it so long I'm going to keep it 
but anyway, yeah, I made a long time, a decision a long time ago to only bring things into my life that make me happy. And mm. what I found is that I'm quite happy with not that much. People often ask me about, you know, what's next? You're working so hard. What have you got on? People say, oh, you're so ambitious. And what's your goal? And I often feel happiest when I am just sort of content in the moment. And I am very aware that I say this from a privileged position where I do have, you know, a comfortable lifestyle and a comfortable background. And not everyone has the options or the opportunities or the platforms that I've had to get to the place that I'm at. But anyway, I'm coming back to my happiness. But I was, um, I just think it's important to say that because when I say, you know, I'm, I'm very con- I'm content with a relaxed lifestyle, it's very privileged to be able to say that. Well, it is because you've created that and it wasn't always that way for you. And you no, could, no, it wasn't always that way. You know, any anybody, I mean, it's not an easy place to get to, but I, th- I think anybody can be happy in the moment. Yeah, and I think that's true. Everyone can be happy in the moment, but also it's okay to not be happy in the moment. Yeah. But basically, my sort of, I'm very happy. The things that bring me happiness are, first of all, being able to wake up without an alarm, so not have to set, set, a, set an alarm, although yeah. I have a cat that acts as an alarm most mornings. I'm, I'm very happy working with my clients once one I love making the connections for people and exploring who different people are and getting to know different people that goes in my kind of in my personal life as well as in my professional life I really enjoy food these days I really enjoy exercise these days I really enjoy one of the things that has made me happy I've discovered that makes me happy is long walks which is a lockdown thing Mm. you know going for long walks I live near Hampstead Heath so long walks at Hampstead Heath or Primrose Hill or somewhere green and grassy so really quite simple things as well as things like going shopping but I would say that the shop I like the shopping but I tend to I don't find that the happiness comes with getting the stuff home and then thinking oh do I really want this or how do I have to take it back but I you know something like shopping is something that I do if I was actively trying to make myself feel better or feel happier after a difficult scenario um anyway I'm going off tangent now no no it's um, funny yeah. a shopping one is um I I, I once had said to my daughter when she came home at Christmas oh we'll go to Brighton we'll go shopping and I had this image of us arm in arm with bags shopping we yeah. got there and it was awful and we were both going yeah I hate Brighton when it's like this and it was raining and you yeah. know so the I, is nice but sometimes it doesn't turn out that way I'm I'm quite capable of shopping my way out of having had a difficult time or feeling not great about myself yeah. but I'm aware that it's the shopping I think for most people is like a fantasy of sort of starting afresh or turning yourself into a different person getting a new outfit getting you know I bought some skincare the other day you know stuff like that it's about changing a little bit about what's happened so whereas walking is just I think what you said about walking and a lot of people have discovered that in lockdown that going for a nice long walk is you you will be in the moment when you go for a walk and that as you said right at the beginning is kind of where the happiness is when you're just there and doing simple things so I'm really um I mean we could talk I I can tell already we could talk on for ages on lots of different things but I want to get into your book and some of the things you've said so um I'll just sort of say that you said that looking after our mind should be as accessible as eating right sleeping well and physically exercising so what do you think the key things I mean it's probably those three eating right sleeping well physically exercising that you can do as an individual to, you know, to really look after your mind. Um, and, you know, what do you talk about in the book, potentially some of the tips you have in the book that we could pick, take away? 
I think fundamentally, it always comes down to what I call in the book, your core stability workout, which is your self-esteem. Nice. Everything in the book. You could look at everything in the book as a self-esteem and self-care program. Lots of the things in there, lots of people are doing anyway, but they don't necessarily do those activities with their well-being or their mental health in mind. So what I've done is sort of reworked or reframed some of the day-to-day activities that we do anyway to be mental health workouts so that you can understand how to do it, why to do it, what to expect, et cetera, et cetera. And each yeah. chapter is broken down like that. But fundamentally, I always come down to self-esteem and your relationship with yourself and how resilient, how strong your core is. And anyone who exercises will know that if your core is out of shape, everything else feels a little bit more difficult and you start to compensate and you get injuries. And in terms of mental health, your injuries or your compensation look like anxiety, depression, disorders, trauma reactions, um, feeling dysregulated, stress, burnout, etc. So my big thing is if we all worked on our self-esteem and we had that in really good shape, then we would see much less of these mental health issues in inverted commas and much less inequality and much less judgment and because self-esteem isn't feeling better than other people it's feeling equal to so it takes the judgment out of the situation and I do believe it might be a little bit sort of um magical thinking slightly but there is I say this a lot there is a belief in me that if if everyone authentically worked on their self-esteem and had that where they wanted it and needed it to be we would have much fewer issues in the world systemic issues social issues yeah totally agree yeah (laughs) Yeah. so um yeah my main thing is always self-esteem come back to your self-esteem and in the book it's the core stability workout is a warm-up along with some boundaries and some vulnerability stuff but throughout the book I say if ever you fall off the wagon you just come straight back to the self-esteem stuff yeah that's where you get up from and how you work on your self-esteem the sort of there's the workout is obviously in the book but there's two steps which I expand on but ultimately it's about doing esteemable things doing actions and movements and activities in your day that give you the message that you care about yourself and that means doing self-care stuff the basically and looking after yourself and being a grown-up and getting the bills paid and feeding yourself right the amount of people who come into therapy and they say I want to work on my confidence and I go okay fine so we're going to work on self-esteem rather than confidence first and then I look at how they're looking after themselves they're not feeding themselves right they struggle to go to bed on time they're late for work or they're too early for work and they end up anxious and burnt out and feeling like they're not good enough and I'm like all right well let's just adjust the self-care actions and then automatically you feel like you like yourself because you're behaving like you like yourself and the other part of that is the thoughts and the thinking and challenging that back chatter and those negative core beliefs that we all have and they all pipe up at some point yeah learning to be your own cheerleader and learning to affirm yourself learning to Yes, set limits and behave moderately, but also do it in a really kind and compassionate way inside of yourself. So that's the internal work. And some people need to do the actions and the movements and the practical stuff first. And then the thinking follows. And some people need to do the thinking changes and then the practical stuff follows. You just got to sort of play with it until you find what you need. Because a bit like physical working out, you know, some things are different for different people. Yeah, absolutely. And do you include physical exercise in the book as a part of the structure of of doing the programme? Yeah, so I talk about physical exercise as it's important to do it three times a week. I sort of prescribe it three times a week. But because there's already so much information out there around the benefits of yeah physical exercise and and mental health I don't talk too much I talk a little bit about the sort of bio biology behind it and the biochemical reactions but I focus mainly on tips 
and ideas on how to make your physical workout more of a mental health workout which yeah. is great for people who don't like working out because yeah. you know I'm I like exercise I used to be a dancer love moving you know that's kind of how I express myself a lot of the yeah. time but for some people they just don't like exercise and that's fine but if they are interested in looking after their mental health which they probably are if they picked up my book yeah. and they can reframe exercise as something that is good for their mind then we get a different take on the matter so yeah I talk about it three times a week and in there I also describe what kind of workouts work for different types of people so you can sort of look through them and be like okay so maybe I'll try yoga or I'll try some cardio or I'll try this or I'll try that depending on what type of stress or complexities you're dealing with yeah I think I mean it sounds so good because um you know a lot of the time it is just about being conscious isn't it about tuning in to yourself and knowing yeah uh, what you were saying about um, paying the bills or looking after your, your self care extends beyond having you know going having a hot bath and putting the candles on. Yeah. It's about how you live your life day to day, and yeah, I, I think it goes as far as like you know if I haven't watered my plants, I think oh, that's self care. You know, you're not looking, you're letting things yeah. die around you. It's, yeah. it's and it's the whole consciousness and being aware and being tuned in, and by having the structure that you've set out that means people will do it and and it goes back to what you said at the beginning it's not a problem it's you know a solution orientated mindset isn't it yeah absolutely each decision you make is positive and um you said about there's a stigma about talking about taking care about men- of your mental health um but have you seen like since covid there seems to be much more openness so i don't know whether i'm imagining that or whether there is but there seems to be a bigger discussion about mental health in recent years have you seen improvements in, or would you see like to see more improvements in the more- i've seen yeah I've, I've definitely seen improvements absolutely and gen- and during covid i think we couldn't ignore the fact that people who had never had any kind of problems with their thoughts or their feelings or their behaviours were starting to feel things like anxiety or stress or um, burning out or having panic attacks. And it really kind of shocked them and the people around them that were working with them. So, yes, I think there is an open conversation. But like you, Fiona, I because I live in like the mental health bubble, I assume that it's being talked about everywhere in exactly the way that I talk about it with people like yourself and then sometimes I sort of segue out and I end up in groups of people where I'm like oh they never talk about this stuff and they just want to pretend that everything's okay and I forget that so I think there there is still you know the desire particularly in England to sort of pretend that everything's okay and kind of get on with it and I've been known to upset people because I say oh you look tired or you look stressed or are you okay and then they get very upset because they just want to pretend that nothing's wrong (laughs) and then I remember that not everyone is talking about mental health and emotional well-being the same way that I am but yes I think there ultimately there have been um, improvements and lots of the corporate events that I do managers and leaders and CEOs are asking for more and more help with how to work with their teams and include emotional well-being Mm -hmm. the struggle I see at the moment is that businesses want to talk about mental health and they want to be seen to be looking after the mental health and the emotional well-being of their staff but they don't want it to affect the productivity of the work and it's kind of sometimes people get the message that you know please be open and vulnerable and tell us when you're not okay but the work mustn't suffer and I think that's quite difficult for people because they're like but if I say I'm not okay then I'm seen as you know I'm going to put in inverted commas weak because there's still the stigma attached to it and then they worry about their promotion or their bonus so there's still this big conflict around how much we share and the way that it might affect our particularly our professional lives yeah and well I think it's horribly I think it's true it would affect a lot of people's professional lives because 
a lot of the people who are leading probably have mental health problems themselves. They don't want to address them. And, you know, the more, as you said, if everyone looked at their self-esteem and, looked, you know, the world would be a better place if everyone looked inward a little more. But at the moment, not everybody is. But there are changes outwardly, which will probably take another yeah. 20 years before people start yeah. to really do something with it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, workplaces are very much about um, it may be being there's probably an element of ticking boxes on well-being as a general thing. But, you know, do, you know, you do need to build emotional resilience at work. Mm-hmm. And that would be something maybe the uh, board might relate to, you know, yeah, resilience. We need that because that's productivity. So how yeah. do you build emotional resilience? Are there things you do? Is it doing your program? Yeah, great question. I actually did a workshop with some interns the other day on exactly that, building emotional resilience. And we focused on self-esteem to start off with um, and then boundaries, how to you know use healthy boundaries yeah. uh, in order to create healthy relationships and intimacy in the workplace and how to make sure that you can handle other people's feelings because not everyone has healthy boundaries sometimes people get angry with you it's not actually about you it's about them you know understanding all of that and then we looked at what we call the window of tolerance so using self-esteem the self-esteem exercises and the boundary work to expand how we handle intense emotions let's put it like that so in a nutshell we all have a particular window of tolerance for example mine was very small for a very long period of time but by doing that work and strengthening those particular muscles let's call them self-esteem boundaries naturally you're able to handle more and more of your own vulnerability and judge yourself less and when things do go wrong and you have big feelings about it you don't feel like you're gonna burn out or you don't plummet into shame and never want to go back to that place again you deal with it because you it's within your emotional I call it your range of motion your psychological range of motion so yeah when I go in I talk to people about resilience I focus on self-esteem and boundaries ultimately and that leads to a discussion about feelings and tolerating feelings and understanding and tolerating other people's feelings which we are really bad at we do not like other people having feelings (laughs) yeah it's very true I think um you know when you think about uh your sensitivity as a child for example um I mean I was a sensitive child as well so I completely understand that and uh but you you forget that your filter of the world is yours and what you see the person next to you doesn't see and it's you know to really understand and sometimes when you're in the midst of your own emotional troubles you you even see it even less but I think it's it's probably would you agree that it's it's really important to get that people everybody sees the world differently yeah everybody's in it through their filter and so you can't ever assume anything and I think that's why I I really I think being a therapist is highly beneficial to me because it gives me a lot of perspective so for example during lockdown you know if you're working at home on your own 10 hours a day in front of your computer and you're just interacting with the people that you interact with on your team your perspective about what's happening is very small and if you're struggling it feels like it's only you that's struggling but being a therapist I speak to you know anything between 20 and 500 people a week depending on what groups or talks I'm doing yeah and I get to hear about what everyone is going through and how all these people are experiencing something slightly different yeah and that gives me that kind of holds me in good stead because I can have a lot of perspective on a on a situation because I understand that everyone is experiencing something but it might be different to me but they're experiencing some kind of level of difficulty or um gratitude or there's something going on but yeah I think that's where therapists flourish because we have a fundamental understanding that everyone is slightly different and it's about taking the effort to understand listening to understand rather than listening to fix 
which brings yeah. us back around to that idea that you know therapy isn't going to fix you the yeah. stuff isn't going to fix you but it's going to help you understand and knowledge is power and yeah and you have to understand yeah. yourself in order to do all that as well I guess you know yeah Definitely. if you're a rescuer you're going to want to fix people and yeah you know, that's, a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast um, that is isn't it but I mean look one of the things I noticed when I read your um I looked at your website and your five-week program and some of the, the thing, one of the things that stood out for me because it's personally relevant is um the importance of social connection because I've been working at home a lot and um, I need to be around see other people so can you just elaborate on that? Because we've all experienced isolation the whole globally. But, you know, the, the importance for me of social of being without other people is, is fundamental. Would, would you say why that is, if, if that's true for other people? And why is it the case, do you think? That we yeah, need? I think it's fundamental because to use the metaphor. So we learn a lot about ourselves by being with other people. And if you were in a gym class and you weren't quite sure what was happening or you were doing an exercise and you weren't sure if you were doing it right, you'd look at someone else to see how they were doing it or at the instructor or in the mirror. So you're getting reflection, literally, if it was a physical workout. And for our emotional well-being, we need, we still need that reflection and that mirroring from other people to make sure that we kind of we understand and we're in touch with all the different parts of us you know often I don't know really how I'm feeling until I'm interacting with someone or I've got on the tube or you know something's happened to help me to reflect back to me something that's going on inside of me so social events are vital to our survival because otherwise we end up in quite an insular self-interested place where we don't let much be back in and we don't learn about ourselves we're also built for you know we are social I know it's a cliche but we are social animals and we're we're built for it we have an appetite for it (laughs) yeah um loneliness is something that is probably one of the most painful human experiences because we just don't know when it's going to end and the trouble with not socializing and becoming lonely at the extreme end of that is that then it becomes too risky to socialize again because we're so worried about someone rejecting us or not being available or not being able to give us that mirroring that we're seeking and that care that we're seeking so it sort of turns in on itself and can get worse and worse and worse over time so in the program I talk about two social events a week and that can be modified to whether you're introverted extroverted or abnerverted which is the one that's you have to read the book but it's sits somewhere in between introvert and extrovert and making that work for you whether that's with one person or six people whether it's for an hour or three hours you know understanding your social arousal levels well Mm. enough that you know exactly what you need in terms of socialization and during lockdown that was the most difficult one for me to try and modify for people because you know I've always been a bit old school I always refused to do online therapy I want people in the room so I can see their bodies and I can see what's happening and I can see all the sort of micro expressions and during lockdown I really had to adjust how I was working and how I was thinking to get what socially what I needed from seeing people online for example but also with my clients and get getting that feedback from seeing them on zoom or not having them um, in the room with me so yeah it was the sort of the most challenging one to talk about during the pandemic um, and I would still say to everyone you know still be safe follow the rules don't yeah. take I've got to socialize twice a week to mean that you can break all the rules you have to do it safely yeah. um uh, but yeah it was tricky it was tricky yeah. I think that's just really I mean it's um, to how difficult it was yeah I mean the only I mean there's been there were studies about how we don't we're different in on zoom and we interpret things differently people move yeah. it's two-dimensional and everything and then 
on top of that, you know, the only good thing, I guess, was that everybody was in the same boat, which might have made it easier. You know, everybody was lonely. Everybody was struggling. But at the same time, some people would have come out of that or are still in it and, and, and had a real crisis, a breakdown, a meltdown, whatever you want to call it. And actually, you know, B have been labelled with some very difficult mental health difficulty. So someone who's mm. in that position, say somebody who's like might be suicidal or hearing voices mm. or in that mm-hmm. peak of anorexia or something like that would your book is would it be right for them or do they need you know do, do you have to do a bit of crisis management first then come to your book I'm trying to imagine if you're further down the line in in trouble you know where yeah the book is a great for for anyone who's sort of in this in the stick of it so yeah. whether you you know psychosis schizophrenia anorexia eating disorders drug addiction or manic what do we call, no, we call it bipolar they've changed yeah. they've changed their names over time because of yeah the, um whatever anyway I would say the book is a sort of it's one of the stops you'll need in your recovery say for example you couldn't get the help that you needed or wanted then the book would be a great way to structure your week ahead of you to kind of keep you safe if you can if you feel up to that likewise if you have had a bit of treatment um, then it's a great way to kind of maintain some of the resources and the skills that you would have learned through your therapy or through your treatment but I would say yeah if there's some if you're a little bit further into whatever's going on you may well need to have a therapist or a mental health professional alongside you in fact, in the first chapter, I talk about therapy. I, I open it up as a, I call it a therapeutic space because there's lots of ways of getting therapy um, yeah. that don't mean you have to sit in front of a stranger and bear your soul. But yeah, if you have something that's a specific issue that you are working with, then I'd say you need to be working with a therapist to yeah. help you just handle whatever it is that comes up. I guess it's like if you had a heart attack, you'd have that fix the heart first, then get on the walking machine, then go to the personal trainer. Yeah. You know, exactly. You got to work work with what's do a ten mile run. Yeah, work with what's hurting you hurting you most. And all the way through, I say, do what you can. I yeah. like, I always say, like, I really kindly support people taking rests, taking breaks. I think they're important in terms of progress and productivity. Yeah. Um, and only you really know what's the right thing and the right time for you to do those things. I prescribe it as like a five week plan because yes, I was going to ask you about your know, five think, weeks. Yeah, it kind of. It, I mean, it takes four weeks to form a habit. Five weeks is sort of a good add-on. You can choose which which bits you liked and which bits you don't. And there will be difference. If you were to do all the workouts for five weeks, as I lay them out in the book, you will definitely see a difference. Yeah. Not all the difference will be associated with what you've done, your mental health workout, because what you'll find is the things, the other things you start doing around that because of the relationship that you develop with yourself will benefit you as well. So I'm not, you know, completely delusioned that this you know it's not going to change your life but it is going to make a difference and I say do it for five weeks because then you can sort of make a choice as to what works for you and what doesn't but also to be quite honest uh, most people probably do it in a much more stop start way and if I'm really brutal that five weeks took me 10 years to come up with if I really think about it so you know these are things that I have done and worked on and understood on a more deeply over the years but it's taken a decade so if you don't get it done in five weeks chill don't worry about it do what you can all the way through I'm saying don't worry if you fall off the wagon you know just come back to this point etc etc so there is a circle in a psychology I think where you um you keep going back and the further into yeah. you get, you get further closer to the centre sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like an onion. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's very, I mean, I've been a personal trainer. It's very, very similar. Like, you know, six weeks was my sort of block for people who yeah. I trained with. 
and they'd be all guns blazing, raring to go at the beginning, and then it would get a bit boring. And then yeah. the results don't necessarily, you know, people people would come thinking that their whole life was going to be transformed in the six weeks. Well, it, yeah. it isn't, but it's gradually improved. Little tiny incremental changes do make yeah. a difference, but you don't always see them. And I think that's something that's important for people to understand when they take a book like yours on. It will yeah. improve their life, but don't expect to suddenly, you know, every problem to be solved yeah it's those small steps matter don't they yeah they do absolutely and but having said that for some people there's sometimes there's just one thing that clicks yeah yeah and everything is better I've literally experienced that with clients I've had over the years I've had not many maybe a handful of clients who have come in who you know feel like they're suicidal they don't they're only staying alive for their kid or or, you know because they can't leave their job or whatever and then there's one thing that we cover and we tweak and we you know change the script or flip the perspective and they're like oh my god that's what I needed I needed permission to change that way of thinking and everything just changes for them so yeah for some people there will be something in there little gems in there that fix a lot so let's let's go let's go with that let's go with the clicks I like <laughs> because you're yeah. right there is there are it's like miracles happen people and things happen for people some people it is literally a momentary you know they see the light <laughs> whatever that light however it's come to them so it's always worth thinking you might be that person who sees the light and has the click and it all things change very dramatically for you or they just improve. So, I mean, I, I love I love um, the, the analogy. I love the book. Um, I think it's going to really catch on with people. So if, if you've got the book, you do, you've got the website. Is there people can find you on Instagram? Is there anywhere else that you are that would be? Um, yeah, I'm bit, I'm, I, I like Instagram. I'm at at your mental health workout and the website is your mental health workout.com i have a twitter but i'm not very good at it so i just stick with instagram to be quite honest <laughs> yeah twitter's mostly people just having to go at each other so germans <laughs> shouting at each other that's what it is <laughs> so brilliant so you can be and your book is available through the website and in shops and yeah it's in shops, most bookshops <laughs> yeah amazon uh, because of the pandemic lots of the bookshops have had sort of backlog of books that they've got to sell before they order in loads of new books so online's probably the best availability but yeah it should be in Waterstones, Foils, what's the, the usual other one? Retail Smith. Books. Yeah. Listen thanks so much um, really enjoyed talking to you and um, look forward to hearing what comes next as well. Amazing thank you Fiona. Thank you. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.